Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of El Nino Speaks. I'm your host, Jose Nino, and today I'm here with a fascinating guest. Peter Brimlow is the current editor of VDare.com, the premier immigration restriction website you'll find on the web. He has occupied that position since 1999. Prior to that, Peter was previously a writer and editor at National Review and a columnist for Dow Jones's Market Watch, among other publications. Though he is most famous for authoring the book Alien Nation, which was published in 1996. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm fine. Once we got this uh, hookup sorted out, Jose. Sorry about the, the, my confusion there. Oh, uh, no, it's all good. It's all good, Peter. Now, my listeners tend to be across the political spectrum, whether they're nationalists to libertarians. So they might not be very familiar with your work. Could you give them a brief overview of what VDARE does? Yeah, my background is in financial journalism. I was 16 years with Forbes, and as you say, I was a columnist for highly technical investment issues for MarketWatch, but I did also Moonlight at National Review. And in, in 1992, I wrote a cover story for National Review, which you'll sometimes credited with starting the modern immigration debate. And that became a book in uh, 95, uh, Alien Nation. But then in late 97, early 98, Bill Buckley purged the National Review of immigration patriots. And for two or three years there, it's hard to think about it now, but for two or three years there, it was impossible to get either facts or analyses about immigration out because there was this consensus left and right that immigration was wonderful and nobody should criticize it, uh, the Wall Street Journal and so on. But then the internet came along and we were able to start uh, Alien Nation. I actually started on Christmas Eve of 1999. No, it's com. I'm sorry. Christmas Eve of 1999. And we basically... Uh, do just that. We provide facts and analysis on immigration that at that point you couldn't get anywhere else. Things have improved a lot since then. There are a number of websites that are good on immigration. But I don't think there's any hard copy place with the exception of Chronicles, I think. National Review pretends occasionally to cover immigration. Yeah. They have a beard there, Mark Krikorian. Krikorian is the head of the Center for Immigration Studies. And I, he, I think he was uh, hired as a freelancer there because of our relentless attacks on National Review, pointing out that they totally dropped the issue. And he does write relatively good stuff there. But overall, they, they just they follow what the consensus among the Republican Party was. And that was that we don't want to discuss immigration because the donors don't like it and the neoconservatives don't like it. Of course, Trump upended all of that. So from our point of view, his immigration position paper that he put out on August 15th, 2015, you know, a, a day that will live in fame, was perfect. He even, if you read it closely, was even discussing a, a moratorium of legal immigration until wages were restored, real wages going again. Now, of course, he didn't do very much of that, although he did more on the executive action side than people sometimes realize. But he didn't legislate. So, of course, once Biden got in, it was all overturned. So we have lots and lots and lots of targets, particularly on the right. Mm, yeah, this stuff is pretty interesting because it is like the immigration battle represents like one front of the battles that like kind of like the dissident right has had with like the Republican Party over the past few decades. And you see that play out with a lot of the gatekeeping in National Review and other legacy organs. Right. Now, one thing that I found interesting 
about your background is how you originally cut your teeth as a financial journalist, but then made like this transition towards covering immigration or as you guys at V there would like to put it, the national question. Right. What prompted you to focus exclusively on immigration and why do you think it's such an important issue for the right to focus on? Well, the short answer is that as time wore on and VDA became better known, it became increasingly difficult for me to continue to work in mainstream media. The uh, Dow Jones, all the journalists in the Dow Jones Market Watch were constantly complaining about VDA. And uh, I was never allowed to write about anything other than and highly technical investment issues. Well, that made no difference to them. I mean, it's just it's a very typical story of modern journalism. You know, they seem to think they have a, a right to cancel veto uh, colleagues who, who they disagree with. And then editor begged me to drop veto because he wanted to me to focus purely on financial journalism, but I didn't want to. And that's so eventually they fired me. The ostensible reason was that there was a big cutback going, and a lot of people were like, "Oh, but uh, you know, I had one of the most popular columns there on this very esoteric." stock market, these very hysteric investment issues. Well, that doesn't make any difference. So as Kennedy said, when people, somebody asked him why, how he became a war hero, it was involuntary they sank my boat. So that's, that's what really happened. But of course, immigration is, is really, I, I think it's the queen of the battlefield of immigration issue. I, I sometimes regret that we don't have a broader focus. For example, I'd like to write a lot more about well, even January 6th and stuff like that. But, I mean, we do some line extension issue. But every single public policy question that the U.S. faces has an immigration dimension, from education, you know, law and order, and, of course, politics too, because uh, the rapidly shifting racial balance, if, if it doesn't do something about it, if, will, will doom the Republican Party. Big time. And they, they absolutely do not want to know about it. I think the issue is, I mean, I guess basically these guys who they're elected to it, Congress, and they intend to cash out on K Street, and they don't want to think about things that will, first of all, upset donors, and secondly, uh, uh, you know, might get them into trouble with the mainstream media. It's extraordinary the extent to which I used to work on the Hill. I worked for, for the Senator Aaron Hatch from Utah. It's extraordinary the extent to which um, they really are afraid of being criticized by the New York Times and by, by CBS News. Uh, these are people you would think had alternative sources of news and information, particularly now with the internet. But I just don't think so. I saw someone this morning saying on Twitter that, you know, it's not just Kamala Harris, but it's the upper reaches of the Republican Party thinks that the most peaceful protest on January 6th really was the equivalent of Pearl Harbor. And I think that's actually true. I mean, they're completely dependent on an extent which shocks those of us who actually, you know, in the media, they completely depend on the mainstream media. They don't seem to think beyond that uh, very narrow um, ambit. They're just incapable of, really any kind of political creativity. I think that is the role of, of Aussie, you know, in distant journalism. You've got to keep kicking ideas around and eventually they get into, they, they get into the mainstream and eventually the Republicans trip up over them. Yeah, January 6th is interesting because you do see the kind of a uni-party form in terms of like the consensus among a lot of high-up Republicans and even some Republicans like Ted Cruz, who brands himself as kind of like a firebrand, kind of go lockstep in that narrative. And just a little side note, I come from a Second Amendment lobbying background, and I can tell you right now, immigration does have a strong impact on that because the majority of migrant groups don't care for the Second Amendment. And I've seen like many Pew research polls where it shows a lot of like foreigners, they overwhelmingly support gun control. And it's basically like this. I tell this to a lot of people. 
that if you lose the immigration battle, you lose every other like foundational issue that's tied to the historic American nation because of a totally different demographic. Your country is basically like politically occupied effectively by foreigners. And, and as a result of that, you will lose a lot of your other freedoms. So if you lose the immigration battle, you lose pretty much everything ultimately. And some people don't get that. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, to the Second Amendment groups, are they aware of this? Is the leadership aware of this? They certainly don't seem to want to get involved in immigration war. Well, it's actually interesting. Gun owners of America, when they were under the leadership of Larry Pratt, he was pretty immigration aware, from my understanding. In fact, he caused a stir, I think, in 2014 or 2015, when GOA sent some email and mail, direct mail material talking about how basically all gun owners should oppose every type of like amnesty attempt because of the simple fact that if you look at the way these migrants vote, they will overwhelmingly vote for anti-gun politicians. And it caused kind of a backlash in some conic circles because you had a lot of the typical cheap labor crowd saying like, oh, this is just like racist, this is bigoted, blah, blah, blah. And then the typical talking points about how like Hispanics are your like natural conservatives. But it it caused like somewhat of a stir at the time. But in my time of like gun lobbying, I haven't seen them really make any outright efforts to link with immigration patriot groups. That said, from the people I have talked to like on the ground and I've worked with in the Second Amendment community, they're generally universally on board with restricting illegal immigration. Legal migration is a different story. There's still a lot of work to be done because there's a lot of people that don't realize that legal migration also poses a unique set of challenges. But overall, I think people, especially the grassroots people in those movements, they tend to be more sober on the issue than the corporate oligarchs and the party apparatchiks in the GOP. It was very interesting the time of the Tea Party movement, which was a genuine grassroots movement, that if you talk to them, we ran articles on this, actually. The actual grassroots people of the Tea Party were very interested in the immigration issue and were uh, very hostile to immigration. But the Tea Party leadership was determined to keep it out of, out of the rhetoric, basically they were desperate to avoid being called racist. We're not going to get anywhere in this debate unless people stop being afraid of being called racist. 100%. There's just no way around this. We just had a, an amusing episode in, and this happens to us all the time, but in, in Atlanta, the part of Atlanta called Buckhead, which is heavily but not completely white, wants to secede from Atlanta, which is dominated by blacks, of course. And there's a secession movement which will be on the ballot in the form. And uh, the leader of this group retweeted uh, one of our tweets, which was discussing uh, the correlation between crime rates in America and the black population in the various cities. And he was immediately denounced for, you know, retweeting a, a white supremacist organization. They just want to smear him, of course. Even though what we were tweeting about was purely factual, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution will not publish breakdowns of race and crime. It's just, it's become a non-untouchable issue for them. So he, we were filling a, a need there by providing this data. Of course, he deleted the tweet, and of course, he apologized, and I'll tell you, no, it didn't realize who we were, and all this kind of thing. Now, that's, of course, what the political consultants would have told him to do, run away. But, you know, we're not going to get anywhere unless we stop running away. In the short run, it may be okay for him, and maybe this is going to go away and everything. But, but, but um, 
But in the long run, you just have to face these issues head on. You've got to develop a language. And that's just to a large extent what we're trying to do is develop a language. When, when the Tea Party was at its height, I wrote an article which drew to a certain extent on a, a column by David Brooks. That he'd gone and walked around among Tea Parties in, in the big demonstration on, on the mall. And he, his conclusion was that he didn't see any signs of racism. Now, of course, this was a very radical conclusion because the New York Times was constantly trying to find ways of smear, smearing them as, as racist. And uh, my headline was, you know, it is about race. And quite right, too, because, you know, in the end, the Tea Parties, it was an implicit white movement, something like NASCAR. The concerns that they had, ostensibly about spending and so on, are things that only white people worry about. So it was what Kevin McDonald calls, uh, you know, an implicit white phenomenon, even uh, without actually being explicit. And that's entirely legitimate. I mean, one of the really hilarious things about current politics is that you keep seeing, uh, you know, various local governments getting upset because some mysterious groups are posting um, hate posters, you know. They never say what they are, but they appear to be. People going around posting, it's okay to be white. Well, of course, the problem is that the, the current regime thinks it's not okay to be white. And we've got to have people who are prepared to say it's okay to be white. As I say, the thing about Buckhead, which is fascinating, is that it, although while it is to a substantial extent a, a secession is a white movement, and it's allowed to be a white movement, it seems to me, whites have a written interest in us, so on. Whites have interests that they, they, they can defend like anybody else. Buckhead is not a segregated uh, area. It, it's only about it's actually only about seventy percent white, so it's not like they're keeping anybody out. And in fact, people who want to come in who, who want that style of life where you don't have to worry about crime and so on. But that doesn't mean that it, it isn't, in some essential sense, a white movement, and and it's allowed to be. Whites have rights. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre how twisted political discourse has become, where basically like every other group in the U.S. can essentially express its own type of like ethnic interest. But when you talk about core Americans or white Americans, like they're not allowed to assert their political will on the issues that they see fit. And it's just a very strange development that we've seen over the past few decades. And it's now just completely metastasized into this really nasty anti-white cancer. I mean, they, they, you can easily find quotes from these people. Well, you know, the mainstream media uh, columnists, well, they actually directly say that. That whites can't be allowed to express interest because that's why they're on it because that's white supremacy. So yeah, it's bizarre, right? Yeah, most definitely. Now you've been involved in the immigration restriction game for some time, so you definitely have like a quote unquote a good before and after perspective on how discourse on immigration has changed. How much progress do you think that the immigration restrictionist movement in America has made? in your years advocating for the issue? It's made a decisive progress in some senses. For example, the problem we had in the 90s and the early aughts was that support for immigration was bipartisan. Uh, and that's why, of course, Bush made repeated efforts to get amnesty through. But over time, it began to precipitate out on political lines. And that's something that Trump was very useful you know, in developing that. It's obvious to most people in the Republican Party that supporting amnesty, which Jeb Bush was doing as, as late as 2015, is just uh, sudden death, that the base will not have amnesty. 
And it, it actually would like to have immigration reduction, although it's very inchoate, and they do their best to fudge that with the party leadership. But you don't find them anymore outright defending amnesty and saying that illegal immigration is an act of love and all this nonsense, which they were saying, um, you know, all the time, five or six years ago. So that, that's enormous progress. In the American political system, there has to be, you know, one party has to adopt an issue for it to actually um, move towards um, legislation. And so, you know, I think we're on the verge of that. And I think that's frankly why the Democrats were so desperate when Trump was elected. Because at that point, when Trump was elected, the Republicans controlled the entire government. And they could easily have put through an immigration moratorium. Of course, the congressional leadership has never heard of an immigration moratorium. And if they do hear about it, their immediate thought is that the donors won't like it, and the neocons won't like it, and the New York Times won't like it, and it's going to be an awful fine, which they don't want. But the fact is, it could have been done if the Republicans acted with the ruthlessness and determination that the Democrats have done. I mean, Joe Biden, you know, is in violation of laws here. He swore to uphold the laws. He's, he's obliged to deport illegal immigrants when he finds them. And he's not. He's doing the exact opposite. That's why it's going to be so easy to impeach him. He's actually broken specific laws. It's not just a question of saying this is treason, which was the issue at one time, although it is treason. There's specific laws that they're just not enforcing. So they do that because they're desperate. They're waiting for the day when whites go into a minority in America. And they're very getting very close to it. But they know it could be reversed. It could be stopped. And they're desperate to stop that happening. Now, the Republicans, of course, are sort of out to lunch on this question, don't realize what an existential threat this is. But uh, uh, having said that, you do see progress among the Republican legislators and everything if you talk to them privately. I mean, for example, there was this whole stage about... Um, they genuinely did believe, and Karlov affected to believe, that it was just a question of, of, of supporting amnesty and Hispanics would vote Republican. I don't think that Republicans actually on the ground and people running run elections so I believe that anymore, despite the progress that Trump made with his parents. But of course, he made that progress by not making any concessions at all to them, which is what we've consistently said at, at um, BDA. We have a writer, Alan Wall, who lived in Mexico for a long time and, and uh, is actually married to a Mexican girl. And he's now back in the States. But he's written since maybe 2003, 2004, that the way to appeal to his parents is to appeal to them as Americans. And don't try to do what we call Hispanda. Uh, and that's yeah. essentially what Trump did in his own stupid, blundering way. It's actually funny because I'm also Hispanic. And what's curious, because I've written about this issue too from like an immigration patriot perspective, is how many people don't realize that the average Hispanic voter, even like a Democrat Hispanic voter, they still hold people like Cesar Chavez in high esteem. And Cesar Chavez, contrary to popular belief, it was actually an immigration restrictionist. He's not just some civil rights leader, like vaguely a civil rights leader, yeah. like the way the corporate press says. And there's like still like a pretty dormant demographic there. Really, the only Hispanics that I've noticed that are like really huge mass migration boosters are like the hardcore ethnic like Azatlan activists and the yeah. Hispanic corporate media that you'll find like in like Telemundo, Univision, and those outlets, because those guys are all right. on cheap labor time. And that's and they're just basically like an extension of like the Chamber of Commerce. The sort of a group of, of what Steve Saylor calls conquistador Americans are out there as well. People yep. are like, what's that guy who, who's on, on Univision, uh, uh, has blue eyes and everything, but he's still, you know, they see themselves leading a, a brown army, but they themselves are white, which I guess is how Latin American works, actually. Yep, basically, yeah. Extent. So they're, they're kind of annoying as well. But 
I've never had any trouble getting a Hispanic writer. I think actually this whole term Hispanic, that should be taken out of the census. Big time. I'm not I sure what it's, what, what it's there for. You know, it's creating a strange sort of anti-nation inside the US, and we have enough of those already. It's trying to make this group into a, a to have some kind of a ethnic or linguistic law, which it don't, you know, which it doesn't necessarily have. There's tremendous, as you know, by the Nimbo, the, the tremendous divisions within the Hispanic community. We've been saying this for 20 years, but the fact is that uh, the Wall Street Journal, they don't want to listen. I think in the end, there's a lot of stupidity, of course, but they're not really arguing in good faith. They just want to continue flow of cheap labor and they just make it rationales for it. And then there are also people who actually do seriously want to deracinate America because they don't like living in a white Christian society. And that was the underlying... We, I was deeply shy. I knew all these neocons. You know, I used to write for commentary. And when I started writing about immigration in the mid-90s, I genuinely accept and believe that these neocons would come along with us because, you know, I presumed they were patriots. And some did, by the way. The late Herb London, for example, was always very good on the issue. And, and, uh, but the bulk of them did not. And it was a big shock. And they opposed it, as they do every kind of fight they fight, in you know, the most vicious and dirty way they possibly could. There's no kind of rational argument. And I think it was ultimately because they were concerned that the refugee statute remained in place because at that stage it was bringing in... Um, <laughs> you know, they wanted to continue flow of Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union. Podhoris, non Podhoris, now, who I used to know very well but stopped speaking to me about 10 years ago, recently gave an interview to the Climate Institute in which he said he's changed his mind in immigration. He now thinks immigration has gone too far and should be stopped. Maybe there are no Jews left in the Soviet Union or something. But that's quite a remarkable development. That's interesting. how bitterly opposed he was. To. I, I actually think that Norman was responsible for the National Review purge. I think he, he got Bill to fire John O'Sullivan, the then editor, because he didn't want, he really didn't like the, this immigration issue getting into public debate. Yeah, Horitz is a curious figure because he's definitely one of like the head neocons, and it's pretty intriguing to see those people kind of like about face on the issue. I have seen some pretty hardcore neocons that were wishy-washy on immigration change their tune on the immigration question. But this kind of leads into like another... If I can just interrupt, yeah, uh, Jose, give, give me another example. I mean, because, I mean, Norman's son, and of course, Irvin Crystal's son, uh, Bill Crystal, are still utterly awful on it. I can't think of anybody. There are individual neocons who are sensible on the issue. Well, I don't even know if it's an organized movement anymore, but I mean, you can't get much worse than Bill Crystal, who I used to know very well. Yeah, you really can't. <laughs> yeah. He was on the board of National Review when, when I, we started writing about immigration, and uh, you know he was un- unhappy about it. And I think he eventually left over it. Mm. Didn't he used to have like somewhat like anti-illegal immigration views, or was he always open borders? Bill Crystal, I'm referring to. He and Lowry wrote a thing opposing coming out. They came out against amnesty under Bush mm. in the end. Well, that was because. Partly, Crystal made the judgment that this was going to split the party because the base was so fiercely opposed to it. And he needed the party because he wanted to invade Iran. So he prioritized uh, Bush's foreign policy over the domestic policy there. They will occasionally make noise about illegal immigration, but, all, but you know, that's usually, people who say that are usually lying anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a safe... I'm like, um, astounded to see Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz just recently tweeted out, my view on immigration is simple. Illegal, no legal, yes. Well, I mean, this is going right back to more than 20 years ago. 
Yeah. I continue to be puzzled how he thinks he's going to be elected president on this line. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of leads into like my next question. Like overall, what's your view on the Republican Party being a viable vehicle for patriotic immigration reform? Well, it's the only vehicle we've got, particularly because there used to be considerable numbers of Democrats who would say that they were in favor of immigration restrictions for classical labor union reasons, which was Chavez's uh, rationale, reason, of course, for opposing illegal immigration. You don't see that anymore. The party is wholly in the hands of the left. So the party, the Republican Party, is the only party we've got. And, and you know, it came quite close to passing quite good legislation in the first two years of Trump's presidency. Frankly, I didn't realize how good the legislation was until I was reading about it recently. I mean, the good letter bill and so on would have reduced immigration very significantly. But of course, the White House didn't get behind it and it was sabotaged by Paul Ryan. So the answer, I think it can be done. I think it's quite possible that it can be done, but it's going to be very, very difficult. And the party elite is both for venal reasons and for reasons of ego in the case of the Wall Street Journal, Paul Chigo and so on. I mean, his, his whole career has been pro-immigration. He's not going to change his mind now. They're going to fight it. They're going to fight it. But, you know, they fought Trump too, and look what happened to that. Yeah. So it could, I believe it could get moving. I can't think of right now an outstanding leader on immigration. That's Trump's fault. I mean, he sabotaged Jeff Sessions' attempt to get back into the Senate, and and uh, he wouldn't support Chris Kobach in Kansas, although Kobach had uh, That move out. angered me, actually, the latter. Yeah. Chris Kobach is great. Yeah, I mean, he cared anything at all about immigration. He would have supported Kobach concessions. And, uh, and the answer is that, he, you know, he doesn't seem to think these things through very far because now he hates Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell was the guy, Senator McConnell was the guy who was absolutely determined not to get, let Kobach get into the Senate. Apparently he was afraid of him. Uh, he thought he was too radical and he deposed some of McConnell's friends in various ways. Now Trump's violently opposed to McConnell. Why didn't he think about that when Kobach was running for office? I mean, he doesn't think, he just emotes. Yeah, there's just like lots of unanswered questions on that front and that like, yeah, where Trump dropped the ball. I tend to think that based on my experience in lobbying and just like political operations, it's just going to probably have to be in the primary season where immigration people will have to set the tone and just say like, if you vote wrong or do stuff that works against our interests, we're just going to primary you with strong immigration patriots because that's yeah. probably like they one of like the more pragmatic ways in the short term to send a message to the GOP because it's clear that the top is not really down with this program but we'll see how that plays out on the other hand they weren't as i say they weren't down with Trump either and, and they swallowed him so uh i don't think they'll fight the death of it if it means that they can stay in with the snouts in the trough and one of the things I, I, that's encouraged me a lot recently is that people are actually starting to run an immigration moratorium on the issue of an immigration moratorium. And, uh, you know, Laura and Whiskey, as you know, ran on this issue in Delaware and she got the He's nomination great. and the party, the party. Yeah, absolutely. The party did everything they could to sabotage her. And uh, Trump, of course, never and never supported but um, I believe she outpolled him in Delaware. So, And, and there are other, other people uh, doing the same thing, Neil Kumar in, in uh, Arkansas. And as you say, it starts in the primaries. Yep, agreed. Yeah, Neil Kumar is actually great as well. I've uh, written several pieces about him at Big League Politics. He's a very underrated candidate, very well-spoken, and great advocate for the cause of immigration patriotism. 
Now, I like to like just like shift gears a bit because I really enjoy the majestic castle that Vidare has in <laughs> Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. What prompted the move to West Virginia? Well, this is entirely my wife Lydia's doing. She's basically the publisher of Vidare. She raises the money and, and, and organizes the fundraising and so on. And over the course of several years, we've attempted to hold conferences. And I think 10 conferences, hotels have canceled on us. Now, the way she's got the contract set up, we don't suffer financial damage. Unlike Amren when it was canceled, back before they started going to Montgomery Bell State Park. But we didn't suffer financial damage, but we don't have a conference. So she started looking for a conference facility, and we believe that, you know, the Berkeley Springs Castle, we can have small conferences here. And it's only two hours from the U.S. Capitol anytime we want to have another insurrection. So we'll be, you know, we're going to start having um, conferences here. I believe she's planned to have one in April. And there are various ways that we can do it. Of course, it's not ideal. We would rather have conferences in hotels in um, well, for example, at one point we had a conference set for the New York Hilton, which would have been ideal for us. They cancelled, of course. They had to pay us $90,000 to break the contract. But they did it without flinching. They were just too afraid of... I mean, they, I'm sure they did flinch, but they were too afraid of the backlash of, of anti-fire attacking and so on. So that's the purpose of this castle. Initially, we were going to run, run it... She wanted to run it remotely because uh, we were living at that stage in the Connecticut Berkshires. But we came down here because of the COVID situation, which was much more rational here in West Virginia than it is in Connecticut. And uh, Lydia's a Southerner. She never really liked living among the Yankees. Uh, She just loves the community here. So we we finally did succeed in selling our house in Litchfield, Connecticut, and and, and moved here last last summer full time. And uh, we have a a lot of land here. We own practically a whole mountain. And one of our ideas is that we're going to we want to try and rescue some of these some of these statues and start a heritage walk here, and and uh, because it, it, you know it lends itself to uh, to that kind of situation, a statue park. You know, like one of the things that really infuriates me about this situation at the moment, just off on a tangent, Jose, and stop me if if this is too far. You know, in Hungary, in Budapest, they took down all the Stalin communist era statues. Well, when 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 they finally became free, but they didn't destroy them. Then there is actually a park in on the outskirts of Budapest where all of these statues live, and you can go and look at them. You know, and and it, it's they regard as part of their history that at one stage these things were all over the place. So why is nobody proposing to start a park for these Confederate statues, particularly I mean this magnificent thing in in Richmond, and it's just extraordinary. I mean that they they would do that, and the, the answer is that. They hate white America more than the communists. The Hungarians hated the communists, which is saying a lot. They want to extirpate white America absolutely in all of its symbols and all of its culture and traditions. Oh, I agree with that. Or do you think that's too harsh? No, I mean, I definitely have as a hobby writing about monument removals how a lot of like the GOP is just letting these woke iconoclasts just steamroll them when it comes to taking down all these monuments, destroying them, removing them and all that, because this stuff is symbolic ultimately in the sense that whenever you take down these monuments and then they are replaced with like civil rights revolution figures, you're effectively seeing a regime change, if you will. This is like a conquered nation. And that's what they want. Like I've long said that the civil rights revolution is 
like the founding for like the woke left, like the nation's founding, everything else that preceded it is seen as like an illegitimate right. structure and society for them. Yeah. Um, Christopher Kawa, amazingly enough, actually wrote a book recently, which actually said that, that, that it's, it's replaced the U.S. Constitution. Uh, if he had to read it very carefully to realize that he was actually at the end saying that the civil rights laws have to be overturned. You have to really, really carefully to, to, to see that that's what he was saying. But he did say it. And, and of course, he's right. The whole thing was a huge mistake. It's amazing how dis- many disastrously awful things were done in the 1960s. Oh, big time, Which I yes. remember, of course. Yes. Yeah, heart cellar. It, you know, it takes a long time to get them reversed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the, all the crime situation, you know, yep. letting, letting crime get out of control. Oh, yeah. It was like the zeitgeist at that time. Like, the Civil Rights Act to heart cellar were all buttressed by the premise of radical egalitarianism and just like the dispossession right. of the historic American nation. It's a package deal. There's a lot of people that don't get that. But yeah, go ahead. Well, just to say, I mean, we actually, Lydia intends to make this castle available as a conference space to other distant right groups that are having trouble with. It won't just be Vidaire Conference. And we have actually had a couple of people, a couple of groups come in quietly and have uh, events here. We were somewhat set back when we were first here because a tree fell, fell through the roof, smashed the roof. We call it the treason tree. They were taking advantage of that to remodel the third floor into a much bigger conference space. And the work on that will be finished sometime in the, in the spring. So you have to come and see us, Jose. Oh, I definitely will have that trip on my itinerary soon because, yes, it is a bastion in a sea of total insanity. Well, the other thing about, you know, being here is, you know, West Virginia is a remarkable state. Morgan County, which we're in, voted 75% for Trump. It's particularly interesting. I, I, I gave a speech at Amram, which we just published uh, finally on, on Vida, discussing the way in which the white vote is moving. I mean, this used to be a democratic state, well within living, well within living memory. And now uh, Trump carried it by more than 40 points. Yeah, but it's red. poor, you know. You go through the center of the state, very poor trailer homes and everything, flying these great Trump flags. It's some kind of very deep core to Trump. Damn him. Wish he'd done more about it, but it has to be said that the phenomenon is remarkable. Yeah, West Virginia is definitely a bellwether of what's going on with like this white working class realignment that you see across like Appalachia and also right. like the Midwest too. And I think it, it's not, that trend is not going away. I think it's going to intensify as the left just goes totally loony on the anti-white policies. And I, I do think that as you mentioned before about the implicit communities for white interests, I think they're just going to grow stronger as time goes on. Right. I think that's right, yeah. And, uh, and at some point it will become explicit. Uh, yes, you know, yes. And I, you know, I think that's our role at Vida.com is to push the envelope and try and get ideas, get people to just frankly... I mean, the, the, this idea of policies are anti-white, for example. That has started to circulate. The Santis referred to something as being anti-white policy this year. I mean, at one stage, Republican consultants were never, never, they were terrified of, uh, they were so terrified of identifying or defending white issues that I had a close friend who I knew of when I was at Stanford in, in, 19, in, in 1970, who was a political consultant in uh, California. And I used to, I remember once questioning about racial divisions in voting patterns in California. And he said, actually said, oh, well, we don't want like to think about race. We try to do it on the basis of uh, interests, uh, you know, uh, political interests and 
and uh, you know, whether you're pro for, for or against abortion and, and taxes and all this kind of thing. And he generally didn't seem to be able to think through um, what the, the political implications of demographics are, with the result that you see in California. I mean, the Republican Party in California has never made in a general election a full-throated appeal on immigration patriotism. And it's, in fact, gone great to great lengths to, to stop people from running on that issue, like Tim Donnelly, for example, who's going to run against. They have to in, import that Indian. What was his name? It turned out to be an Obama vote, and Obama appointed to the Fed, and a lot of money was spent on him, and he got the uh, Republican gubernatorial nomination because uh, they didn't want Tim Donnelly running on him. On, it's, you know, the only time they ever did it, and even then was sort of indirectly, with, with Proposition 187, which yep. basically rescued Pete Wilson's career. Well, they never did anything about it, and and, and they, they probably went back to run, running on you know this hispandering and all this stuff. It's a really extraordinary story how the Republican Party, the California Republican Party, I mean, as you know, national question issues walked up to the party and banged on its door. The bilingual issue, probably one eight seven, and what was the other one? I've forgotten. There's the, the third one. The three great initiatives in the nineties that were carried. Oh, anti-affirmative action. Yeah, yeah. Affirmative, affirmative action. action uh, yeah. yeah. Every single one carried overwhelmingly in the teeth of massive opposition from the entire California establishment, including the Republican establishment. But they still carried overwhelmingly, but the party just ignored them. They didn't even defend Proposition 187. It was judicially sabotaged, and they, they never raised a whimper about it. That's a real story. I, mean, I have to get someone to do something about this in California. I remember once I was talking to Peter Robinson, who's at Hoover, who I've known for many years, and I was discussing this issue with him. And he said, I was just going to immigration with him. He said, you know, if you raise this question in a Republican meeting in California, you will be ostracized. That's just absolutely extraordinary. I mean, they don't want to run on an issue, which is clearly dooming them unless they do something about it, um, which their own base is desperate to have, have them do something about. But they didn't do it. It's really a question of the power of ideas, isn't it, to Jose? I mean, I mean, uh, ideology has a tremendous grip on people that goes, that goes beyond interests. I think Keynes said that practical men in authority who think that they're devoid of any intellectual interest, interest at all are actually the slaves of some long-defunct academic scribbler. Uh, I think there's a lot, a lot in there. I blame the Wall Street Journal for a lot of it. I mean, an entire class that should have been thinking about this issue has not been thinking about it. Yeah, I'm in full agreement. Because you think about what, what, what happened in the 20s. You know, there's a tremendous struggle to stop the last great wave of immigration. And they several times got legislation to the point where it had to be vetoed by Democratic presidents and so on. But what really turned the business class around was the threat of communism in the, in the, in the late teens and early 20s. You know, there are a lot of bombings and so on. And, you know, you can still see the scars on the Morgan Bank on Wall Street for when they put a bomb on, the, on, his, on the, the window ledge. And that frightened them. And it should, and this greatest wave of communism, because that's what the BLM anti-far rights were, that should have frightened them too. But, it, but you know, for whatever reason, it did, did it, I was about to say it didn't seem to. But I don't know about that. I mean, Trump came down close to being re-elected and, and of course, Republicans did well in, in, the, in the House. So maybe there's some kind of incohate recognition of what's going on. But the business class of right now appears to be totally corrupted by wokeness and, and their human resource departments to a simply staggering degree. I started my career in financial journalism, you know, in the 70s, and that was the last the height of the Cold War. There were, certainly were communist sympathizers in, in all these newsrooms, and they were organized. 
and it was very, very difficult to make, a, would, it would have been very difficult to make a career as an explicitly conservative writer, journalist in, in, in those days. There were a few, but not very many. But the reason I got away with it, because I was writing about, uh, I was a financial journalist. Somebody had to write about business and economics and investments and all this kind of thing. Nobody else wanted to do it, so I got to do it. And, and uh, you know, I was in my briar patch, and then they couldn't get at me until I gradually came out and started writing about immigration for National Review. All very interesting developments. We definitely face a lot of challenges like ahead when it comes to like pushing for immigration restriction. Now, I think that like talking about this issue against the backdrop of big tech censorship is really important because it's also pretty connected because of the simple fact that the masters of the universe of big tech are basically here to limit discourse as much as possible. And immigration restriction is one of their low-hanging fruits to target. And we've seen just a whole slew of people on the dissident right get censored and sometimes just kicked off platforms altogether. How intense has the big tech and financial deplatforming been against VDARE in your experience? Oh, it's a huge problem. I mean, for example, our, our traffic now is like a, probably a, a half to a third of what it was five years ago. Our traffic from search terms, people go onto search engines and asking, looking things up and being directed towards us, fall by a factor of 90%. So it's a huge problem. And that's why we spent a lot of effort in diversifying onto other social media platforms and so on. Although I'm not sure how long some of these are going to last, some people like Getter and so on. And it's a huge problem on the financial side as well. I mean, we, we, um, so we've been systematically uh, cut off from... We, we can still process credit cards, thank God, but, but uh, it's been a huge struggle. We've lost a, a, couple of, uh, a number of uh, services. Even the email service, you know, we used to use constant contact, and one day it suddenly wouldn't work for us anymore. When Lydia called up and got the girl on the phone, because we assumed it was a, a glitch of some kind, which had happened, and the girl said, oh, you, you, uh, the service reps, oh, well, we don't service your industry anymore. Industry? What industry is that? She says, white supremacy. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Right, right. So, uh, you know, we're not the only ones this is happening to, of course, but, but it's quite extreme. That's why we still, we, we, we actually, in some ways, go in the reverse direction. We actually have a hard copy magazine that we publish. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, we may have to go back to hard, doing hard copy magazines. Uh, one of the really infuriating things about PayPal was that they destroyed our subscription list, which was organized through PayPal. It took us some years to build it back again. And, of course, we are litigating, but it's a brutal struggle. I mean, we, we, uh, we spent a lot of money in arbitration against PayPal, and eventually our lawyers just told us, I, have, we have, I haven't written this up for a reason I'll explain in a second. Uh, our lawyer just, lawyers just said, this guy, this arbitrator is hopelessly biased against you. There's simply no point in proceeding. And so we backed out of that, but we are about to file uh, with the uh, FTC. Now, of course, that, that's probably not going to get anywhere either because it's controlled by the Biden administration now. But we, I, just, I just won't give up. We just, we just keep fighting. We spent over $100,000 fighting PayPal. But they claim, must have, our lawyers estimate, they used outside counsel. They must have spent somewhere between half a million and a million dollars defending themselves. Well, of course, they can afford it. But we just have to fight. I just don't see there's any alternative. Indeed, and litigation takes quite a, quite a lot of our time, and and, and uh, you know, 
it's something which I've never gotten into, if, except the fact that we're on the point of being driven out to public square. We just have to fight back. Yeah, not resisting is basically compliance. Like that's just like the truth at this point. I mean, we have this case in in, in Colorado. If you want to talk about it, do you want to make it to get into this, Jose? Yeah, yeah. You get into this because I think my listeners would absolutely want to hear about how you guys are fighting back. Well, we have this case in Colorado Springs now, which was the last big commerce that was cancelled. It was cancelled because the mayor, who is a Republican, John Sullivan, said that he would not allow city services to be extended to this conference, to our conference, which means, of course, police and fire. So in other words, he's, he's implicitly inviting violence against this conference. I'm not surprised that they cancelled, although he had to pay us the liquidated damages. And so uh, at that point, we had a lawyer, a lawyer approached us in Colorado and said, this is a violation of, you know, decades of civil rights litigation. Governments have to protect unpopular uh, or even, you know, they have to protect speech from violence. And that was settled in the, in the civil rights era because people, so these southern towns didn't want to have civil rights demonstrations, did civil rights conferences and so on, and, and the, the legal system forced them to. So he took this case on a contingency. He was so confident that he would win. And if there are, there are multiple damages, like triple damages or something, if you found guilty of a civil rights violation like this. So it looked like a good deal to him. But to his utter amazement, the city of Cardiff Springs fought. And even though the, you know, it's a black, black and white law question. And so he, at that point, ran away. And we had to get another, other lawyers in. And, and, but we've, we've lost every stage. And now we're just the other day we were appealing to we filed a writ search for a writ for certiorari in the Supreme Court. I mean, a, a civil rights a, a First Amendment lawyer I know who's very prominent said to me, you know, what if this case is not overturned? If the appeals court decision is not overturned, it means that any town can refuse to extend protection to any distant group, and of course then they're immediately the mercy of Antifa. So it's reversed this and appears to have reversed this entire issue, which was which was settled by litigation in the uh, in the civil rights era. Maybe there's there's one law for whites and one more for well, well actually Americans and one one law for, for blacks <laughs> in, in this country. Maybe that's what we're finding out. Anyway, it's an absolutely chilling situation because it means that um, you know cities can will be able to suppress any distant meeting. Now we had a very good dissent on this appeals court, and there, there's. There are other cases where um, the law has been upheld. For example, in, uh, in Baltimore recently, the, um, this uh, ra- ra- um, hard, very hardcore c- uh, Catholic group, Church Militant, the, the city did its best to cancel them, and they were forced to back down by, after, after fierce litigation. And of course, Jared had to litigate in, uh, in um, Tennessee. The state of Tennessee, it can't not let him hold a meeting in, in his public, public because of the, his government on its First Amendment issue. But it did want to stick him with the um, security costs. So it's a very similar case to ours. And, and he litigated that and he won, which is why they had the conference a few weeks ago, a few months ago. But, but, but um, the Cardiff Springs case is extremely ominous. And we just have to, I, just, I need to get on the phone trying to get more people to write about it because the, the, we filed the brief with the Supreme Court in late December. Just for reference, when Peter referenced Jared, he was referring to Jared Taylor, the head of American Renaissance. But yeah, continue. That's right. Yeah, I, I should make that clear. Uh, uh, who, you know, I think very highly of him. And he, he's, he's, of course, hit very hard with the deplatforming too. Yep, Worse time. than we are, actually. Which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Because, I mean, one thing about Jared is, you know, he's a certified non-anti-Semite. 
Southern Poverty Law Center had this guy, Mark Potok, who actually gave an interview with him in which, in which he said, whatever else you can say about uh, Jared Taylor, he's not an anti-Semite. That's because he won't allow people to get to, you know, he, he publishes his comment thread and all that kind of thing. Uh, this dude hasn't done him any good at all. He's still, you know, banned. And, he, you know, he didn't go to Charlottesville. We didn't go to Charlottesville. We still got banned from kicked off PayPal and everything. They just intend to wipe us out. And, and uh, you know, Jared used to have a paper product, and we were entirely on the internet, as I say. So it's so paradoxical that in some ways we're going in the reverse direction now because we, we, we want to build up a, a, a hard copy magazine that just reflects uh, what we have, are currently publishing online because we may have to go back to the days of, uh, of direct mail, you know. I can attest to this that direct mail is actually pretty effective. I, I've done that when I was doing a lot of gun lobbying, but it's, it is primitive, but... A lot of these organizations will have to adapt and use like maybe email marketing depending on the email service provider because some of those providers like MailChimp can get kind of um, ornery when it comes to the like, Yeah, we've, we've been kicked out of MailChimp. Yeah. We've been kicked out of MailChimp. One of the projects we've got in front of us right now, and Lily wrote about this in one of our appeals recently, said the, the forces we have here in Berkeley Spins is not just physical, it's actually also technological because we know that we have to get off Microsoft and go to open source software. We have a, a very good techies who want us to do this, but it's a huge pain in the neck. You know, we'll have to stop using uh, Outlook as an email tool and everything, but you just can't trust these swine. Outlook has recently put out a statement. I don't know if you noticed this. Do, do you use Outlook at all? No, not really. As an email tool. Well, they put out a statement saying, out of terms of service and say that, uh, saying that um, you can't use their email tool to promote hate. <laughs> Now, they've not actually done anything about this yet. But, you know, we all know what that means. Yeah. So at some point, they're going to deprive us all of, it, of email. So we, we have to, you know, adapt to that. And, and, and this is all stuff that goes on behind the scenes. It drives me crazy that I don't get to write more via there. But I can't because, first of all, I, I, I do a lot of editing. But also, uh, you know, there's all this stuff behind the scenes that's going on that, that absorbs uh, our attention and a lot of resources. Yeah, so overall, would you say big tech is like the biggest threat to the immigration patriot movement? Well, no. I mean, the biggest threat is the world left and the people who are behind that. And big tech is, is really just one of the aspects of this. In a technical sense, you're right that it would be very unfortunate if we, we weren't able to get online and so on. And we had, a, um, you know, what the hell's the term? Um, uh, domain registrar cancelers. I mean, they're getting right into the architecture of the internet. So that would be very bad. But you know, maybe we'll have to go back to direct mail eventually. I mean, it worked in the Reagan era. I mean, it's an astounding situation to be in. But of course, yeah. well, on the other hand, um, Jose, uh, it really is important. And I said this in my speech uh, at Amram, which I, which I uh, published said the other day. One of the things I said is we have to recognize that this is a communist coup that's going on. When I was uh, in financial journalism in the 70s, I remember inflation was occurring, as it is now. And it, it took people quite a long time, financial analysts, quite a long time to figure out what inflation meant. And I remember attending an analyst meeting where somebody gets up and says, do you realize that we're now in the, one of the great areas of inflation? Is this a new, like in the 19th century? The numbers have surpassed uh, the historically famous periods of inflation in the 19th century. But we hadn't realized it. And that's how I, uh, it sort of crept up on us. And that's how I feel about this communist coup. I mean, this fellow Merrick Garland is a, is a, is a um, Stalinist thug, you know. 
the whole administration is, is, is full Stalinist thugs, and they, they intend to, they, they're left-wing totalitarians, and we should start calling them communists. Anyway, I went into a rant there. How, why did I get this? <laughs> onto this, uh, uh, Jose? I was talking about something else in the speech I gave. Well, you have to prod me about it to come up with something. Ask me another question. Well, no, I think this is all like pretty like valid information like to tie everything together because what we are facing is like a radical leftist takeover of like the U.S. and all these issues from like immigration patriotism to the erasure of American history are interconnected. So it's good that there are people like you who understand like the bigger picture issues because whenever I talk to a lot of normie conservatives and your typical Republicans, they focus on very banal issues like tax cuts or whatever and don't really focus on the bigger picture identity issues, which I think are the biggest issues right now that will redefine this country. And I think like I've argued extensively that if we continue this path, we will basically come to a scenario where people will be talking about the lost tribes of the Americans, if you will, because I think the end goal is like the disappearance of legacy American culture if the woke left had their way. You know, I, I just remember what I was going to say, Jose. If you've not lived through it, it's really quite a remarkable effect an election can have. It really is like a tremendous blast of ozone. And so the Trump election, uh, in many respects, came to nothing, but it did have a tremendous galvanizing effect. And there's every possibility that the Republicans will control the entire legislative branch after 2022, in which case they should immediately impeach both Biden and Harris, which would make Dan, whatever his name is, McCarthy, uh, the, the, um, he'd then be the president. So that's what they should do. They can do it. They should do it. You know, people don't, just don't think in some way space big enough. The other thing I would say is, you know, I'm incredibly old, almost as old as Trump is. And uh, I lived through the 1970s. And after the fall of Vietnam in the 1970s, we really did think that uh, the Soviet Union was going to rule the world. Because you saw there was no type of, the, uh, no sort of organized opposition anywhere. And and uh, the, uh, the the Russians were building this blue water navy and, and they, they were seizing, uh, you know, they, 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 they seized control of Angola and Mozambique and Southern Africa. And it, things looked extremely bad. And even now, uh, I'm, I'm not clear why it reversed, but it did reverse in, in a remarkably short period of time. Uh, so... One of my conclusions about this is that miracles happen quite often in politics. So it's, it's happened both ways, unfortunately. But nobody expected Soviet Union to collapse. Nobody, uh, left or right. And um, so for that reason, I, I think we have to uh, persevere. Oh, yeah, we absolutely have to continue fighting. Giving up is simply just like not an option at this point. And yeah, that should serve like as a form of inspiration for people that even like when the U.S. and Western civilization has gone through its, their own like trials and tribulations, people will always find a way, whether it's like the Ottoman siege or like Vienna, or even like going way further back to the Battle of Thermopylae. Westerners, whenever they put their minds to it, they can defeat a common foe that is hell-bent on destroying their civilization. But people just have to like step up to the plate and start speaking truth to power. Right, and and also organize. I mean, one yep. of the reasons we, uh, Lydia wants this castle is she wants to have as many meetings as possible because she wants people to meet each other. 
Yep, and people net and networking and so on. Well, well, before this damn COVID thing, we had a habit of going into whenever we were traveling, we'd go into cities and contact our donors and have private dinners for them, completely under the radar. The only people who knew about it were the donors and 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 you know the us and the hotel just knew that was a room. A, a room. The restaurant would just know there was a private party. And it was astounding how often we did this, and people came and realized that. There were people in this city, and maybe we did in Seattle, for example. There were people in this city. They thought they were completely alone. They had, they thought they had no idea that people uh, uh, like them who agreed with them existed in, in their city. So the result of this was that a couple of them actually started their own meetings. They would get together uh, even when we weren't there and continued to meet and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and socialize and plot. And uh, we had a meeting in Berkeley once, and the, the two women came to the meeting, who lived on the same street and had no idea that they shared their views, you know, because they were afraid to speak up in Berkeley generally. Anyway, I really think that's a very important function and it's one, one that we want to do a lot more of like, whilst we've got this, uh, the castle open, is just have people come in and meet each other and, and see what happens, you know. It's a very basic form of political organising, but, but we've got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Organised politics is like the key to rolling back this woke tyranny now, yeah, before we log off, what are the best ways my listeners can support VDAIR? Well, you know, obviously, we're always delighted and, and we love very much our donors. And it is still possible to, to go onto VDAIR and give money by credit card. There are also various other ways of doing it, which are listed on the site, some of which are completely, uh, you know, well, they're all confidential, but some of them are extremely confidential. The other way, uh, Jose, as I, I really love it when people st- tweet out our articles and, and, you know, disseminate our articles to their own lists. It's a way of getting around the shadow banning. People can just form their own, their own informal lists and, and groups and, and circulate stuff. You can't do it on Facebook because they won't let you send VDAR articles out, even though they claim when they shut it off Facebook, they claimed it wasn't for political reasons, but because we were running... Um, a bot farm, which is a complete lie, of course, and we're litigating over that. But you can tell that it's a lie because even if we had been running a bot farm, why can't individuals send out our articles to their own Facebook accounts? Well, the, the answer is because Facebook hates us and wants us dead. But in general, I really love to see stuff sent out. I think it's absolutely critical. Even printed out and spread around that way. Great stuff. Yeah, to all my listeners, please go on vdare.com, subscribe to their email list, make all the donations you can and follow their content and share it with friends and family because we need as many people possible in the know on these issues. Well, everyone, there you have it. Another episode of El Nino Speaks is now in the books. Thank you again for tuning in. El Nino has spoken.